from WRHU in Hempstead, New York. This is Getting to the Root. We explore issues in depth and shed light on important topics that you won't hear on your day-to-day news broadcast. Covering topics of local, national, and international importance while bringing community voices to center stage. This is Ben Abrams. Welcome to Getting to the Root. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, it should be pretty obvious by now that mass usage of opioids has become a devastating problem in the United States. What many are confidently calling an epidemic, opioids legal and illegal alike are the leading cause of accidental death in the U.S., and their effects have left visibly deep wounds throughout many communities across the country. Now, the reason I say whatever side of the political spectrum you're on is because this epidemic has become a major political talking point in the last few years, with particularly partisan twists. But whether or not opioids are part of the political debate, they're still having deadly effects, especially in cases of lethal overdoses. So this week, we're dedicating our entire time to talking about this subject and how these drugs are affecting a very specific part of the country right here in Nassau County. For this episode, contributors Lianne Sousa and Rafaela Tonani are discussing Narcan, a chemical that's being used to save victims of overdoses, and how it's being used by Nassau authorities. Here's Lianne Sousa and Rafaela Tonani. Over 140 Nassau County residents gathered in Glenglow for a free Narcan training and overdose prevention workshop sponsored by the Nassau County Office of Mental Health. Narcan is a nasal spray that can save an individual from a life-threatening overdose. Trainees at the workshop learned to administer Narcan. They received an excellent certification and an overdose prevention kit, including the spray. We're here with David Heimowitz, trainer at Narcan Workshops and Director of Development at the Mental Health Association of Nassau County, and Terry Kroll, who lost a son to opioid overdose. David, can you tell us what exactly is an opioid and what are the effects of it? Almost every drug fits into some category, and it's either categorized usually by what it does when it gets in your body or how you put it in your body. Opiates are classified as painkillers. Their main purpose is to kill physical pain, and one of the reasons that we have difficulty with people getting so addicted to it is not only that it's physically dependent and kills physical pain, a lot of people report that it also kills emotional pain. So for somebody who's experiencing any kind of difficulties, that feeling of just being numb unfortunately works really, really well. The way they work is they seek out receptor sites in your brain. It's almost like a lock going into a key, and once that opiate finds that receptor site, it basically tells the brain to start working. It slows down the respiratory system, and it slows down the heart rate. What is the specific effect that Narcan has on the brain? So the way Narcan works, it's it's an opiate agonist, which basically means it does the opposite effect. So it will actually seek out the same receptor sites, and it actually pushes any opiate that's in that receptor site off the receptor site. And then it lands on the same receptor site. And for like 30 to 90 minutes, it becomes a shield. So there's no other opiate that is in the body or that can come into the body after that that can work because it can't land on that receptor site. So it literally creates a reversal of that high. Uh, and it puts the person into an immediate withdrawal. What is the difference between alcohol and opiates? So opiates that we will consider them painkillers, but they work on the central nervous system the same way that antidepressants will work on the body. The problem is alcohol and other types of substances that are depressants, there's no real receptor site for them. They go directly to the central nervous system. So Narcan can't work on any other type of substance because it only works because it goes to that very specific receptor site. Here on Long Island, what are the opioids that you're seeing on the rise? 
I think we've seen for quite a while when people started recognizing that there was an epidemic. Um, heroin was certainly the one that we were seeing a whole lot of. At some point in time, they started mixing a substance called fentanyl with heroin, and we started seeing an increase in overdoses because of that. And now we're seeing a slight switch that fentanyl is actually becoming one of the most deadly of the substances right now. And what demographic and what area of the counties are we finding the most overdoses? White, middle-class young men, like 18 to 25, from heroin. Um, we're seeing the increase in fentanyl. We are concerned about people who were substance users, especially heroin back in the 60s and the 70s, now kind of experimenting with it again. So that's another at-risk group. And the group that we don't spend enough time talking about is people who are what we consider elderly because they are, have access um, because of health issues to prescription medication that are opiates. How long does it take for someone to get addicted? The problem with opiates is that they are physically addictive drugs. So anybody that uses it is at risk of becoming physically addicted. And for some people, one, two, three uses, they can find themselves starting to crave that substance. How does an overdose look like and what should a person do to help? Sometimes somebody who's using or misusing or trying to get high on an opiate, their high very much can look like what an overdose looks like. So what we try to do is make it simple and just three things to look for consistently. The first thing we tell people is that when people are in that high of an opiate, they're in a phase that they get to called the nodding out period, where they just look like they're nodded out. They can almost look like they're unconscious. So what happens then is the first thing you want to try to do is make that person awake. You want to do anything you can to kind of arouse them so that they open their eyes and maybe even talk to you. That would be the first sign that at that moment, they've not overdosed. Somebody who you can't wake up, no matter what you do, <laughs> is it gentle shaking, yelling their name, simple things that we tell people to do. If they don't wake up, there's a good possibility that's the first indicator they might have entered into an overdose. The other thing is that because the respiratory system is starting to slow down, what you see with some people is you'll see that they're breathing a lot louder. It could be snoring. You'll see excess drool coming out, like somebody's in a deep sleep. That's when somebody's still high or just using it. What happens for somebody who's starting to overdose is now the respiratory system is starting to shut down. So now it's not snoring. It's literally the person's gasping for air. It almost sounds like somebody who has sleep apnea where there's a blockage. And then the other thing that tends to happen for somebody who's overdosing is as the oxygen is being pulled away from your extremities, your skin tone, your lips, your nails, they start to turn different colors. And when you move oxygen away from those extremities, they can start to turn like bluish, purplish, darker kind of hues. And so that's what we try to tell people is you can recognize the signs when it's moved from you're not waking up, your skin tone is starting to change, and your breathing has become a gasping for air. What effect has have you seen on Long Island with hosting these workshops? We'd love to be able to tell you that because more people have Narcan, less people are <laughs> overdosing, but you can't make that comparison because the problem with Narcan is that while it works and it's wonderful when it works and it is life-saving, the other parts of the process, for us to really make an impact on any kind of an epidemic or substance use, there's three levels. There's prevention, which is primary intervention where you stop people from using in the first place or you reduce the number of people. Narcan doesn't do that. You hope that that after somebody has overdosed and the Narcan has worked, you hope that when they wake up that they make different choices moving forward, but that's not always necessarily the case. The second part is an early intervention where people are maybe starting to experiment with it, but you get to them to the point where you can stop them from becoming disabled by it mm -hmm. or developing an addiction, or then you get somebody in treatment. So Narcan is a wonderful piece of the puzzle, but it's only one small piece. Narcan for us is the tail end that we can hopefully keep people alive, but the other things need to be in place. I think one of the biggest problems 
problems we have, there's just not enough treatment. And, and education. And education about that, absolutely. We need to keep doing all those things at the same time. Now, Perry, tell us your experience with overdose. So my son, Timothy, he suffered from migraine headaches. And we brought him to five or six different doctors. Finally, someone said this person would be able to help us with pain management. He asked to see Timothy a week later when I said I need an, an evening appointment because I work during the day. And Tim was almost 19. He said, oh, mom, let him come on his own. Let him be an adult. And I went with that. I thought, oh, that's okay. I was of that trusting society that you trusted your quote unquote doctor. So he prescribed Timothy whatever the first opioid was. And without my husband and my knowledge, he told Timothy, bring that back. And he prescribed another one. He quickly became addicted to prescription drugs, all under my insurance, by the way. The pharmacy was filling it. Insurance was paying for it. And there was no there was no responsible person here. So that's why the iStop law to me was fantastic law. Unfortunately, we were not educated or there wasn't enough information. This is, we're going back eight to eight, nine years ago as to where to go to get treatment, how to get treatment, what to expect from treatment. Timothy went from using the prescriptions to using heroin because the prescriptions were no longer available to him and the heroin was cheaper and he could get it on the street. And we didn't realize that Timothy was using heroin. After, I guess, seven or eight suicide attempts, not using drugs. They were different types of suicide attempts. We were confronted with Timothy having carbon monoxide poisoning and having to have to be brought to Nassau County Medical Center to go into the barometric chambers. While he was in the chambers, somebody came and told me that he was using heroin. I didn't know what to do at that point. The woman told me that Timothy was afraid to tell us that he was afraid it would kill me. I was honest with Timothy, and I said, look, let's be honest with each other. Let's work this out. Great relief from Timothy. He wanted help. Tim went to one um, one 28-day program, but coming out of the 28-day program, there wasn't anybody saying, Timothy needs long-term. This is how you can help Timothy. He physically was dependent. There, there just wasn't enough information for us to even understand. We worked with Timothy every day and every night. He fell off the straight path a couple of times, but then he had nine months clean without using. And the only reason we can say that with confidence is because we randomly checked him. That was all we knew to do. And unfortunately, on August 28, 2009, somebody Timothy worked with sold him heroin. And Tim used probably the same amount he had used nine months before that. And his body could not accept that, and he died from an overdose um, in my arms. Narcan wasn't available to the public at that time. I didn't even know what Narcan was, let alone that it would have helped Timothy at any point. Tim reported the doctor who did this to him four months before he died. Four months after Timothy died, that doctor was arrested. He was sentenced to only six months in jail. He wasn't tried for killing Timothy. He was tried for the investigation. Under the investigation, they found he was selling prescription drugs for six and $700 to undercover police officers. I was approached by Jeff Reynolds, the then director for LICAD, Long Island Council for Alcoholism and Drug Dependency. That led to my becoming an advocate and going to Albany, going to Washington, trying to see change. We have seen some change. The I-STOP law was something that about five other families and myself stood on the Senate floor and it was voted for unanimously. The I-STOP law is a law that was put in place so that doctors and pharmacists have to follow a real-time database and cannot prescribe to someone who was just prescribed an opioid down the street by, by another doctor. I don't know if there's no more over-prescribing, but it has cut back on prescribing quite a bit. That's all fantastic, but of course the um, there's always a bad side to change like this, and that led to higher heroin use. The program I'm working with now is to have a group of volunteers, families like myself, go to the emergency rooms when a family is confronted with this and help them to navigate through finding help, having your loved one evaluated to find out the right treatment 
treatment? What type of counseling? Counseling one-on-one? Would group counseling be better? Would it be better for him to work? What type of diet should he be on? Why they are scared, apprehensive of, of everything. If the family understands that, it'll make it a little bit more, I don't want to say easier, but palatable. Families should be the emotional support for their loved one. Have you come across families that are not as receptive? Yes. Of course, that's part of the family intervention group here because when I was in the emergency room, I didn't know he was using drugs. My first response was, oh, no, he's not. He doesn't believe in drugs. When he was in high school, he belonged to a a group called Straight Edge. No drugs, no drinking, no alcohol. I think I would have reacted differently if there was someone to say to me, it's okay to accept the fact that this is happening because a lot of families don't know what to do. It's not necessarily that they want to hide anything. It's that they don't know what they're dealing with. Do you think it needs to start with legislation? I don't think it has to start anywhere. I think it has to be a full circle approach. I don't think legislation is going to cure it. I don't think education prevention is going to cure it. I think that we have to somehow reduce it, but we have to reduce it. And by all of these efforts, we are reducing it. We're bringing awareness. I have a daughter who has three young children, and I know she's aware because of our experience. But are the other mothers in her mother's group aware of what can happen? So that's the education part of it. The prevention part of it is reducing the amount of opioids that are prescribed. There's a reason for a painkiller, but there's not a reason to overuse a painkiller. There's not a reason to overprescribe a painkiller. And there's certainly not a reason to not understand and not know what a painkiller can do. The other piece of that, too, is, and that was very well said, that any time that we've seen certain drugs become the drug and call it the epidemic, as that goes away it's usually replaced with a different substance. So the issue is we have to look at this and reduce this, like Terry says. But we also have to be forward thinking. So that's where the legislation comes in. That's where the support from families and and peer advocates come in is wonderful. But we also need to be thinking about if we do make inroads into this as we have been, and this goes away as an epidemic, what's coming next? Because we need to be ahead of the curve Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there will be something next. There's not been a time in our country that there's not been some substance that people have found to use, misuse, and abuse. So one of the things we're concerned about a lot is is synthetic drugs. That seems to be uh, becoming very, very popular. And what scares me are the vape cigarettes because we know now young people are trying that way before they even try smoking cigarettes. So that has replaced what a lot of people pick up first. Do you talk to your grandkids about this? We talk to them every day about this. We talk about Uncle Timothy's life and we talk about his death. We talk about Timothy's death in an age-appropriate way. Can't tell a five-year-old what you can tell an 18-year-old because they don't understand it. Not because they shouldn't know, but because they don't necessarily understand it. We were in the car one day, and my five-year-old and my seven-year-old were in the back seat, and they were asking me about, did Mama and Uncle Timmy have bunk beds? Uh, like they do. And I said, oh no, Mama and Uncle Timmy slept in two different rooms, and they had single beds, but lots of times Uncle Timmy would come and jump in Mama's bed, and one time he was jumping in the bed and he fell and broke his arm. So my five-year-old grandson said, is that how he died? Brendan quickly said, no, that's not how he died. So I thought, well, let me let Brendan answer that to Brody and see how he um, understood what we told him. So he said, Uncle Timmy died from taking too much bad medicine from a bad doctor. A couple of days later, my daughter had a headache and she doesn't swallow pills. So she takes liquid children's Tylenol for her headache. So she poured a little cup of the Tylenol and she drank it and she started to pour another cup. And Brendan quickly said, Mommy, I think you're taking too much medicine. 
So Jamie called me and she said, Mom, I think we might not, we might be approaching this the wrong way. And I said, well, what was your answer? Well, I explained to Brendan that there's instructions on the back of how much you're supposed to take and that I checked with my doctor and my doctor's a good doctor. And I explained everything that I was taking the right amount, that they would take less. They would only take one teaspoonful and I have to take two teaspoonfuls. So I said, well, then we have taught them properly because now they are alert to the fact that you have to be responsible with your body and you have to be responsible with your medicine. And in a five-year-old and a seven-year-old's mind, that's drug prevention. That's education and that's awareness. What are some of the treatments and treatment centers available for people? There are a couple of places that are non-for-profits. Uh, LICAD is one of them. Call them. Ask them for an appointment. You go in, they talk to you about what's going on. They figure out what's going to be the best place for you or your loved one. My advice is just be sure that the person that you speak to to get help is educated and knows what they're doing to find help for you. Places like LICAD. Nassau County, we have an extensive system of contract agencies that provide a whole lot of that stuff. The medical center right here has a program. So we also have a hotline, 222. Seven talk where 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can speak to somebody to even start getting a different sense of what's available and what level should the person start up. Some places sound like they're treatment centers and they're not treatment centers. There's a difference between somebody who would do counseling and somebody who could do treatment. So there's a different variation. So knowing what their credentials are, knowing what they've been licensed to do, who supports them. So calling that helpline is also great for that because we mm -hmm. have a directory that also tells you these are the ones that are licensed to do these. These are the ones that are supported by a contract through the county. These are the ones that are private. But you want to make sure you're getting it from the right place. There are some substances, especially opiates, where depending on how long you've been using and, and where you're at, detox would be the first step. Sometimes you may need a place to live, so there's housing programs. Sometimes it's important to have what's called like a care manager. It helps you negotiate the system because it's complicated. But I think what Terry says is, is the most important part, which is finding a place or a person that can help you figure out and your family mm -hmm. where is the right place to start. You mentioned your program. What, what is the name <coughs> of it? It's called the Sherpa Program, and I'm working with Thomas's Hope Foundation. And we'll be working out of Good Samaritan Hospital. Somebody comes in with an overdose will be called, you know, a short period of time and we'll, we'll meet with the family or friend. Are the centers expensive or are they subsidized? LICAD is a non-for-profit. There's no charge to go to LICAD. LICAD will help you navigate the insurance program as well. Sometimes you go to a hospital emergency room and they're told they're not high enough, which I don't understand. Like, how can you turn me away? I'm looking for help. There are certain policies set by the managed care and health insurance agencies about what you can do when. And when it comes to detox, you need to be recently using. Because then why would you need detox if you're not using anymore? I will say, though, please, please give a phone number out during these interviews. Because if I'm a family in distress, I don't have time to look it up on the computer. Mm -hmm. I just don't have time. I'll be lucky if I have a crayon and a piece of paper to write it on. I tell the uh, Nassau County and Suffolk County police, if you're going to give out a sheet of paper with centers that I can call, put it on a neon piece of paper. Because you know what? I got a pile of foot high of magazines and mail and paperwork that I haven't even had a chance to go through. But if I know there's a hot pink piece of paper with a help phone number on it, mm -hmm. man, I'm going to be able to find that. Just starting out with simple things like that, is huge for a family in distress. What is the number of your hotline? The one here in Nassau County is 516-227-TALK. Um,
Are there ways people think can help someone who is overdosing, but they are not really helpful? I remember growing up, there were certain things I heard. You slap the person. You throw ice cold water on them. We've kind of learned over time those are probably not helpful things to do. You can actually hurt somebody. You can do some damage to their neck if you hit them too hard. And ice cold water actually slows down your heart rate. So the last thing you want to do is, is exacerbate the slowing down of somebody's heart rate by doing that. So we try to educate people about some of the myths and things that people may have grown up hearing and things that we've learned are probably not as good to do. We're part of Nassau County government's www.nassaucounty.gov and you look up our mental health or chemical dependency, you can see a whole lot of education on opiates. The other thing that's good about it is that's an easy way to get to find out where our trainings are. Um, we have been very aggressive about our trainings. We just completed our 218th training since we've been doing this at the end of 2012. We've trained over 10,000 people. We don't charge anything for them. If you come, you get a free kit. We'll go anywhere as long as there's a host and there's a sponsor and there's a place to do it. We've been in churches and synagogues. We've been in libraries. We've been on Hofstra's campus multiple times. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us is either through our helpline or go to our website. What do you think of Narcan? As a mom having lost a son to an overdose, I feel that this is part of our first aid kits. I came across a young man overdosing in his car at an intersection. I broke the window in his car and I administered the Narcan and could not believe how quickly it works. And my gosh, that's life-saving. And that gives you the time to get that person to get help. And I was very, very impressed at the Narcan training the other night that they were all ages. And we noticed that too, walking in. We were very surprised mm-hmm. by people our age, like 90. 20 year olds that look like they were with their parents. That just shows you that people are taking precaution and people are having this discussion at home. What exactly were the items that were in the safety kit? Standard Narcan kits come with gloves because again we want people to make sure they protect themselves. We don't want them breathing something or touching something that can get them hurt or put them at risk. There's a rescue breathing mask if you perform rescue breathing. Sometimes it may just be that they're not overdosing. It could be that something is stuck in their airwaves. With that as well we give you actually two pre-filled syringes of Narcan because sometimes one is not enough. You need to use a second one. And then we also put in our business cards so they can get in touch with us. Our helpline is on there. And then we give them a certification card that they've completed it. And then, of course, we give you the instructions so that they can always look okay. at it. The medication themselves come in a blister pack. And then inside the blister pack, if you open it up, there's also instruction sheets in there. Outside from this workshop, where can people, the general public, get Narcan? Well, right now, the ones that we actually have been given by the New York State Department of Health, these are the actual ones that they're actually selling in many pharmacies. There's other different variations of this different formulations of intranasal um, and intramuscular as well. So different pharmacies are carrying this product as well, and they can be purchased over the counter. I encourage people to go to a training, though, because you can buy the Narcan over the counter, so nobody's going to tell you what signs to look for, how to use it, how important it is to call 911 simultaneously. There's two of you in the room. One of you call 911. One of you take care of the patient, right? So it's so important to be trained on this. It's a critical point. When we've designed these programs, is we're not showing people just how to use the kit. We're bringing resources. So we'll always have local treatment agencies set up information tables. We'll bring a lot of the grassroots organizations like FIST and Lira and NA and Naranon so that when you're coming there, if you're coming there because something is going on in your life, you don't walk out with just your kit. You walk out with contact information and resources. You know that an agency that will send staff to a two-hour event is telling you something about the quality of that agency, that they're willing to be there for people. And then we always have, and that's how Terry and I met, is we always bring people with us that have a family member that have had an experience with an opiate, and we bring people that are in recovery from opiates. Since when did Narcan started being known as a response? You know, it goes back a while. Timothy passed away in 2009, and mid-2010, I was trained to use Narcan, and I was with my husband and people in the profession, so we were one of the first people on Long Island to be trained. We've worked very hard over the past 
couple of years to make sure that Narcan was in every police car, every ambulance. And that was something else that we advocated for to make sure Narcan was available. Before it was available publicly like this, that you could go get trained and get a kit or buy a kit, the state was giving them out in areas where they knew there were people using heroin. They were giving them to the heroin users so that there would be less fatal overdoses. So I can't even say how many years that was. Narcan itself, naloxone, um, has been around as a medication for quite a long time. It was in 2006 that New York State passed a law that non-medical personnel could use it. And in 2012, we were one of the first uh, agencies to become a certified program. But it's been around for quite a while. And it's fascinating you hear that because we're actually hearing in other states that they've actually set up safe houses, places where people can go and use, and that it's sponsored by a state-run program, I think, where there's staff there with Narcan in case somebody overdoses. So the harm reduction model is um, something that people debate, but what people are practicing that kind of model is, let me have Narcan around. I'm not ready to stop using. But what we teach them is, well, until you're ready to stop getting high, don't die. Do you see the media covering this? I would say 2009, no. In 2018, yes. There's a lot of social media going on, too. I was never a social media person until I started advocating and realized that I needed to be so that people could contact me or I could let them know what's happening on FIST, Families in Support of Treatment. I'm on the board of that. It's all through social media. And I do see a lot on the news media. I would get frustrated because the law enforcement was not necessarily looking for the low-level dealer. And I thought, why not? Why aren't you? going after the street dealer. Well, now they are. They, they would say, oh, we're, we're looking for the, for the big guy because we want to stop it at the top. Well, you know what? We have to stop it from the bottom up, too. I see a lot of coordination with law enforcement and the medical society, and I see them speaking up. DA speaks about it. The police commissioner speaks about it. The county executive speaks about it. The two counties work together. The two police departments working on it together, making a difference on Long Island. What are the steps that we can do to get Narcan in college dorms? A few weeks ago, I trained the public safety officers here on campus. Um, we've opened it up. We've targeted colleges. Mm-hmm. So any colleges or literally just need to contact us. We've done student leadership. We've had fraternities and sororities reach out to us. And I would love to get to college campuses that have dorms and yeah. train the RAs and the hall directors. So we've done a few of those. It's just a matter of getting no. enough resources, going right. out and having people say, we want it there. A couple of years ago, my niece was the RA at her college. And I I asked her, I said, are you Narcan trained? And she said, we're trained to call the campus security and they call 911, they get an ambulance. But we need to be Narcan trained because you know what? Unfortunately, there may be an instance that there's somebody nodding out or, you know, you see those signs and you know what to do. And you need an immediate response. You can't wait until the officer comes. And you have to use it between two and three minutes in between each puff, right? Every formulation is different. The current one that's pre-filled and ready to go, you can give more than one administration and the manufacturer tells us to wait two to three minutes before you you use it, first dose goes in one nose, two to three minutes you wait and you go into the other nose. Is there a danger of overusing Narcan? I've never heard of that. I mean, when we think about people that's maybe using fentanyl and things like that, we've heard that they've had to use six to eight doses. So but again, the strongest advice we give people, if you think somebody's overdosed, you call 911 as quickly as possible because we're only giving you two doses and they may need more and there may be other medical problems. So this is not something where you should just be using Narcan and say, okay, he's awake or she's awake and we're good. You should always be calling 911 and getting somebody because they're going to come with more expert intervention. And And know that every police officer and every first responder is trained in Narcan, and they carry it in every police car on every ambulance. So you call 911 first, you use your Narcan. If, unfortunately, it doesn't work right away, you know there's another dose on its way. People trying it between, like, 15-year-olds or anything, if their friend is overdosing, they're afraid. 
Have you heard stories where they don't take them to the hospital or wait? More often than we like to account for. Um, and there's been college campuses, including this college campus, that have had experiences like that where people have overdosed and unfortunately in some cases have expired. We also advocated for the uh, 911 Good Samaritan Law. I feel this law is not publicized enough, but this law says if you are in the company of somebody who has overdosed and you're using, it's okay to call 911 and stay with your friend and you won't get arrested, your friend could die without the right help. If you stay with your friend and you wait for the ambulance to come, you could tell them what that person has used. You can tell them maybe how much. You could tell them if they were drinking as well. What is the number of your hotline one more time? 516-227-TALK. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Getting to the Root. You can find this episode and our previous ones wherever you stream your podcasts. We're also being distributed on PRX, the public radio exchange. Just go to prx.org and type Getting to the Root in the search box. And don't forget to like us on Facebook to stay up to date with all of our latest material. Just go to facebook.com slash show. Thank you to Ryan Little for contributing his work to this episode. You can find his music on the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. 